Well, I don't know if you've seen it. It's in the news, not everywhere, but it's a thing. We are living in the wedding boom of 2021. That's right. That's what they're calling it, the wedding boom of 2021. With everything that was going on last year with the pandemic, turns out that there were a lot of weddings that got postponed, pushed back, or waited to be scheduled until everything opened back up in 2021. And the wedding industry this year is booming. People are getting married at a record pace, and they're spending record amounts of money on those weddings. Uh, One study said that the average cost of a wedding reception, not the wedding ceremony, the wedding reception was $22,500. The average cost of the entire wedding is somewhere between $25,000 and $35,000 for a wedding. And if that blows your mind, how about this? The entire wedding industry has been valued at somewhere around $55 billion. I don't know about you, but that is incredible to me. It blows my mind to think that that much money is spent on weddings and that we have this entire section of our economy built on weddings. And it just boggles my mind because I want to ask, why are weddings so important to us today when it seems like we value marriages at an all-time low? We're spending more and more money than we ever have on the wedding, and yet marriages are falling apart now faster than ever. Why why that disconnect? Those two don't seem to go together, and it makes me wonder, makes me think, maybe there is more going on to weddings and marriages than we can realize. And see, that's where we're going today in Revelation, because Revelation is once again going to pull back the curtain for us. We've said that all along throughout the series, that the Revelation is an apocalypse. Apocalypse not meaning the end of the world, just a revealing or an unveiling. And Revelation is going to unveil that there is more to the concept of marriages and wedding than we realize in our current present and physical reality. And so what we're going to look at today in Revelation, seeing that curtain pulled back, it is a marriage picture that takes this idea of weddings and marriages to a whole new level. What we're going to look at today has been historically called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So uh, if you have your Bibles uh, on your phone or in front of you, maybe you're using your scripture journal that we passed out, we're going to be today in Revelation chapter 19. And it's here in Revelation chapter 19, right before what we saw last week that we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, just before the battle of Armageddon begins, we're going to see Jesus and his bride, the church, gather in Revelation 19 for worship and celebration. So if you found that passage, read it with me. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. This is what John sees. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be uh, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So this is an interesting piece of revelation. And what's more interesting is where it occurs. It occurs here in Revelation chapter 19, which is just after what we read about in 1718, the destruction of Babylon. It's before what we read about the end of 19 and into 20, the battle of Armageddon and the millennial kingdom. In the middle of all that is this marriage supper. And John introduces this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb with a word that's only in the New Testament used here in this part of Revelation, and it's used four times, and it's the word hallelujah. Now, if you've been with us throughout this whole series, you've seen that John doesn't use words by happenstance. He's very particular, and the fact that here in chapter 19, we see this word that we've seen used nowhere else in the New Testament used four times shows us that there's something special and something important going on. This word, hallelujah, it is a shout of victory that we see primarily in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, and maybe the place that we see it most together, uh, especially tied with the idea of a meal or a supper, is in the Hallel Psalms uh, that were sung by the Jewish people around Passover. So Passover was a celebratory meal of remembrance that the nation of Israel celebrated, and they would seem, uh, sing Psalm 113 and 114 before the meal. After the meal, they would sing Psalm 115 through 118. And these songs were sung as praise to God for delivering them from the captivity that they had experienced as a people and a nation in Egypt. And so when we read these words, hallelujah, that same idea of victory and deliverance is supposed to come to mind. You see, in Revelation 17 and 18, we didn't cover it on a Sunday morning. You hopefully covered it in your reading. We see John in those chapters see the fall of Babylon, the great city, the harlot, the mother of all harlots. And John described the fall of this power that opposed God and opposed his people. And we see in those chapters that God is once again going to deliver us, his people, from this oppression and persecution. And so the appropriate response is what we read. Hallelujah. It's a victory song. And see, what I really love is that this happens before the battle of Armageddon. We see the fall of Babylon in 17 and 18. We see the battle of Armageddon at the end of 19 and the beginning of the millennial kingdom in 20. But here before the actual battle, we see uh, John sees heaven erupting in a celebration and worship of hallelujahs. And I think that's reminded us what we've said all along in the book of Revelation, that the victory is certain even if it hasn't been realized. So maybe that's where you are today, and you need to hear that, that there is a certain victory for the people of God, even if that victory has yet to be fully realized. Well, all of that was kind of for free. I just thought it was something neat to introduce us to this subject. What I really want to spend most of our time talking about this morning is this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's kind of the central theme of the text we read today. It is this marriage supper between Jesus the bridegroom and his bride, the church, that takes place before he returns at the battle of Armageddon. And so we read that, and I think it can be a little hard to understand. Uh, and here's what I mean. Because we, as we said, celebrate this idea of wedding and throw piles, billions of dollars worth of money at it. 
and yet we don't value as much marriage. The idea of weddings and marriages in some ways have become two separate thoughts in our minds. Well, that was not the case for the people that John was writing this letter, and it was not the case for the ancient Jewish understanding of weddings. See, as we've seen in Revelation for for several weeks now, is that we need some cultural context to really help us fully appreciate and understand what's going on here in Revelation. And so I think this morning it would be good for us to spend some time looking at the cultural historical traditions of the ancient Jewish marriage and wedding uh, so that we can understand the picture that John sees here in the book of Revelation. So as we walk through this, I want to kind of take a few minutes and walk you through what that ancient Jewish wedding tradition look like, and I want to say up front that I get lots of help from this, uh, from a small book written called The Ancient Jewish Wedding, uh, wedding by Jamie Lash. So, so let's just kind of hit pause, clear your mind, whatever you think you know about weddings and marriages, kind of put it aside because the, the Hebrew Jewish wedding uh, in ancient times looked a whole lot different. See, it would begin with something wholly unfamiliar to us, the, the marriage tradition, the wedding tradition would usually begin by the father of the groom selecting a bride. Whoa, hold on, hold on a second. Like, that seems weird to us. That seems wrong to us. That's totally foreign. I mean, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't say, hey, don't get up on your high horse too much because those arranged marriages have a far less divorce rate than when we pick our own spouse. But anyway, this is the ancient Jewish wedding, and it began with the father of the groom picking out the bride. Now, in some case, he would confer with the groom if the groom's old enough, and he would always work uh, in the son's best interest, but the idea here that's not familiar to us is that it was the groom who selected the bride. It was not vice versa. And so after the groom would select his bride or his father, this prospective groom would leave his father's house where he'd lived, where he'd grown up, where he was potentially working. He would leave his father's house and he would travel accompanied by his best man, his friends, to the bride's house. And there he would not meet with the bride initially. He would meet with the bride's father and the groom would finalize arrangements in order to pay a purchase price for the bride. Now, again, this is not familiar to us. We don't have that purchase price anymore. Maybe the uh, thing that we would uh, equate to that is the giving of a ring, that there is a, a financial investment in this engagement, but it was much different in the Jewish context. They would actually settle on a price, negotiate this purchase price that the groom would pay to uh, the bride's father for the privilege of marrying his daughter. And as soon as the groom paid this purchase price, that is when the marriage technically began to go into effect. And again, that's totally foreign to us, right? Because we think, you know, wedding, celebration, then marriage. But here in the Jewish context, the marriage began before the celebration uh, that ensued. And see, the groom and bride, after this purchase price uh, was paid and the marriage technically began, they wouldn't live together for some time. The bride would instead be considered consecrated unto her groom. She was set apart for him. Uh, she was engaged, we would say. She was betrothed to him. And before he would leave, they would seal this new covenant between them by sharing a glass of wine and then having uh, an engagement or a betrothal benediction 
benediction pronounced over them that this cup they shared was a new covenant between them. And then after the sealing of the covenant, the groom would leave the bride's house, go back to his own father's house, and stay there. Now, at the end of that period, after he had left the bride and stayed at home, we don't know how long that was, but it was a period of time, he would return. And he would return dressed in festive garments, accompanied by his best men and friend again, and they would make their way in a uh, celebration to the bride's house. And usually they had a rough idea of when this was happening, but they didn't know exactly when for sure. But when word came, the groom was coming, when the bride saw the groom coming, he, he would enter in, he would take the bride, and the whole bridal party would make its way into the groom's father's house. And going back to the father's house with his bride in tow, they would begin this celebration with wedding guests gathered, dressed in their best, finest robes, and they would celebrate for seven, for seven uh, sometimes even 14 days. It's just a totally different world than what we live in. We have a 20-minute ceremony followed by a two-hour party, and that's it. But this was a long process in the Jewish custom, from the purchase price being paid to the going away to the coming again to take the bride back to his father's house where then they would party for a week or more. Well, why is this important? Well, number one it's important because when John sees the marriage supper of the Lamb, the idea that flows in his mind is not a $35,000 American farmhouse wedding. This ancient Jewish wedding is the picture in John's mind when he sees this as a, as a wedding supper and a, a marriage celebration. And I think more than that, when we understand the cultural context of this ancient Jewish wedding, man, the idea that the church is the bride of Christ, it takes on whole new meaning. Let me read you this quote from Jamie Lash. She says this. She says, Our Messiah followed the steps of a Jewish bridegroom in taking a bride for himself. Much has been lost to the body of believers by not seeing Jesus in this original Jewish context. The ancient Jewish wedding customs are the case in point. And as you learn these customs, you will sense an added richness in your relationship with the one whom your soul loves. I think she's dead on here. And I think that when we understand these ancient Jewish customs, we can begin to see how that is exactly what Jesus did for us when he took us as his people, his church, to be his bride. So let's back up and walk through that, right? We began by saying that it was the groom or the groom's father that would choose the bride and not the other way around. Well, Scripture tells us clear, uh, clearly that we have been chosen and loved first by God, not the other way around. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. So, what that, so whatever you ask in my, my father in my name, he will give to you. You know, that's an amazing thought that we are chosen by Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus chose you. You have no choice in the matter. I absolutely believe that we must respond in repentance and faith to the call of Jesus on our life. But let's not move too quickly by, for theological argument's sake, the point that Jesus chose us. We are his chosen bride. He's not forced with us. He's not stuck with us. He didn't settle for us. But Jesus himself chose us. 
right? And then we would read of the groom after the bride had been chosen, uh, leaving his father's house, going to the bride's house and settling on this purchase price. Well, look, that's a picture of Jesus. After Jesus set his affections and love toward us and chose us, he left his father's house in heaven to come to earth where he might purchase us for himself at the cost of his shed blood on the cross. We read this a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, And they sang a new song, that is the beasts, the elders, the people, gathered around the throne, singing to the Lamb who is Jesus. This is what they sang. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered, and look at this, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language. And people and nation. See, the purchase price for us to enter into this marriage relationship with Jesus was his very blood. The blood that he shed on the cross that we might be freed from our sin, made alive with him. So after the purchase price, right? That they settled on a purchase price. The groom and bride would then what? Enter into a new covenant that they would seal through sharing a glass of wine. Does that ring any bells? Maybe the last supper, not the marriage supper, but the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples here on earth. Jesus took his disciples to an upper room where they celebrated Passover, but it was a different Passover. It didn't follow every single one of the old Jewish traditions, but instead the bread that he broke, he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And the cup, this is what Jesus said when he shared this cup with his disciples. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So yeah, Jesus chose us. He purchased us by his blood. And then by that very blood shed, allowed us to enter into this new covenant with him. And just like the bride in ancient Jewish or the groom in ancient Jewish tradition would after the sealing of the covenant go away for a period of time, Jesus has went away. However, he has not left us here alone. He's left us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself to seal this new covenant in our hearts and to seal us and set us aside while we wait for our groom Jesus to return and make no mistake, he will. We don't know the day or the hour. We may can tell that the time is getting closer. But just like the bride in ancient Jewish tradition who was waiting on her groom, so we are here waiting for Jesus. And we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are waiting, but yes, he is coming. Again, look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to, my, to, to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now, I love that. Just like the groom would go back to his father's house and make preparations to go get his bride and bring her to live with him forever. So that's what Jesus says, I'm doing for you now. Yes, I've left you. I've left you with a comforter as a seal and a promise that I'm coming again. And I will come again to take you back to my father's house where right now I'm busy preparing that place for you. Man, that's good. And when we get there, guess what? 
Revelation 19 says we're going to celebrate and we're going to rejoice and we're going to have this great marriage supper of the Lamb that will make every wedding here on earth pale in comparison to the celebration and the splendor that we're going to experience around that table. It's pretty fascinating when you look at it. When you see those ancient Jewish traditions and how perfectly Jesus fulfilled those things in our relationship with him and what he did to purchase us as his bride. So what does that mean, right? That's cool knowledge to know. Hopefully, it deepens your affections for Jesus when you realize just what he's done. But beyond that, what are some implications of this that that we need to make sure we understand for where we are today? Well, number one, I think the first implication is the fact that Jesus chooses this picture, marriage, for our relationship to him shows us why marriage is so important. See, like I said earlier, we celebrate the wedding. We've glorified the wedding. We've made a multi-billion dollar industry out of the wedding. But it's not just the wedding that is important. It is the marriage that's important. Of all the pictures that God could have chosen to use to illustrate his relationship to his beloved church, he chose the picture of marriage. This is what Ephesians 5, 31 and 33 says. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, the mystery of marriage, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. That, that ought to bring some weight to our understanding of marriage. See, our marriages are imperfect, sure, but they are a holy and ordained picture of the gospel relationship between Christ and his church. So we dare not treat marriage lightly. In a world where marriage is easily discarded, easily walked away from, church, let that not be said of us. Let's view marriage properly. Let's give it the weight it deserves because if this is what Jesus chose to illustrate his relationship with us, let's give it the value that it deserves. But beyond that, number two, second implication is, is that our sin is infidelity to Jesus. Now, we need to kind of let that soak in for a minute because I think when we think of sin, we think sin's not that big a deal. It's a mistake. I slipped up. I dropped the ball. But if we are the bride of Christ, if Jesus has went through this cultural tradition to let us know that we are his chosen, beloved, purchased, and sealed bride, then our sin is nothing short than cheating on Jesus. That ought to be a heavy blow to our hearts. Because what we do when we sin is we give our affection, our attention, and our devotion to other things when they belong to Jesus alone. So ask yourself, what is it in your life that you are cheating on Jesus with? Is it your hobbies? Is it pornography? Is it, I don't know. But when we sin and turn our attention and affection and devotion to other things, that sin is infidelity to the one who has purchased us as his bride, Jesus. 
It's a sobering thought. But lastly, the third implication is this, not just that's why marriage is important, not just that our sin is infidelity to Jesus, but number three, too many church people are still dating Jesus at best. Here's what I mean. There are far too many people who are watching this today who are sitting in the seats of our churches and churches all across this country who think they have entered into a marriage relationship with Jesus, but really you're just dating at best. You have asked Jesus into your heart, but, not, but you've never really experienced this type of intimate relationship. And so what I want to tell you and what I need you to hear is this. Just because you come to church just because you pray, just because you try to be a good person, it does not make you the bride of Christ any more than a high school senior who goes to David's bridal to try on a dress to see how pretty she looks makes her a bride. It just doesn't work that way. To be the bride of Christ means to be purchased by his blood, to enter into a covenant relationship with him and be surrendered to him and him alone. And today... You need to ask yourself, are you have, do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus or are you just still dating him, getting what you want from him when it's useful? Guys, that's not the picture of the gospel. The picture of the gospel is a picture of commitment. It's a picture of dedication. It's a picture of marriage. So maybe today you say, you know what? I think you're right. I need to talk to somebody. I need to make that relationship real. I need to truly, once for all, surrender myself to Jesus. If that's you, we have people here on Facebook, here on the website, who are waiting to talk to you right now. Maybe you're just struggling with a sin issue and you're feeling convicted over that. We'd love to help you uh, walk through that and pray through that. Uh, or maybe you're just struggling in your marriage this morning and you need somebody to talk to. What I'm trying to tell you is we are here comment, send us a message, click on the I need prayer button. We are here to walk with you. If we can't be in the same room, we can still share a conversation together. So reach out, let us know how we can help. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for the time that you've given us today to look at this beautiful picture of marriage that you've set before us. And God, when we see these weddings that are going on around us and the celebration that is there, God, would it remind us of who you are and what you've done for us, your bride, the church. God, and when we see marriage, it would not be something that we treat lightly or loosely, but we would see marriage as the picture you've chosen and consecrated uh, to be a picture of your relationship with us. And so, God, I pray that you would make our marriages stronger. God, you would draw us closer. And for those here today who've never trusted you as Savior, that they would do that now. In your name we pray. Amen.